Pushkin. Hello, hello, Revisionist History listeners. Malcolm here. I'm on the road reporting the next season, season five, coming your way this spring. But I had to stop because something has just come to my attention. A law review article. Well, a law review notion, I guess. An anonymous note in the Harvard Law Review published about a month ago entitled, Pack the Union, a proposal to admit new states for the purpose of ensuring equal representation. It's bananas. Now, some of you may remember, I started off season three with an episode called Divide and Conquer, in which a constitutional law professor named Michael Paulson convinced me that Texas has the right to break into five states if it wants to, for a whole complicated set of reasons, including the fact that the authors of the U.S. Constitution used a crucial semicolon. Here's a little clip of me and Michael Paulson from the end of that episode. Imagine a governor of Texas reads your law review article and says... <laughs> well, that's a funny enough premise as it is. <laughs> <laughs> and says, okay, I want to I trigger it. Okay. So walk me through how triggering might work in the real world. Well, hmm. <laughs> Imagining a real world where people take law review articles seriously. Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a good, it's a better real world. It's a better real world. It's a better world. Um, all we know is that Congress has granted its consent for the sovereign state of Texas to do what it needs to do. But the significant fact here is that given that Congress has already granted its permission, mm -hmm. the, all that has to happen is for Texas to get its act together. It's up to Texas. It's up to Texas. I love that. Despite our efforts, however, I believe Texas still remains only one state. But that hasn't deterred the anonymous author of the Harvard Law Review note. On the contrary, the idea concerns Washington, D.C., a non-state territory completely under the administrative control of Congress. What if Congress were to shrink the District of Columbia itself to just a few federal buildings and then divide the rest of the district into 127 states? That's the idea. 127 new states. One for each neighborhood. Each neighborhood would then get two senators, and the partisan deadlock in the Senate would be over. I told you it was bananas. But I love bananas' ideas, particularly this one. And Pushkin Industries has the perfect venue for this kind of bananas discussion, a new podcast called Deep Background with Noah Feldman, a professor at Harvard Law School. In Deep Background, Noah has some fascinating conversations with a wide range of experts to get to the stories behind the stories. The show has episodes about everything from black holes to Mohammed bin Salman to the agony of testifying before Congress, which Noah recently did at the impeachment hearings for Donald Trump, if you watch those. So Noah's the kind of guy who would know all about that law review note. So I called him up. The whole thing concerns Washington, D.C., a non-state territory overseen by Congress. We started talking about this genius idea of doubling the number of U.S. senators, and then, of course, we ended up somewhere completely different. I hope you enjoy our conversation, and we'll subscribe to Deep Background so you'll never miss another one. New episodes drop every Wednesday, wherever you get your podcasts. I 
as a non-constitutional scholar, walk me through how this how this new idea is outlined in the Harvard Law Review works. Well, the magic of the idea goes back to your comma conversation and your whole analysis in that episode of the question of whether states have to consent to being broken up into lots of new states. So the person who came up with this idea, our so far anonymous author, thought about it and said, well, it's true that under the constitutional reading, the most rigorous one, states would have to agree to be broken up. But the District of Columbia is not a state. It's not one of the 50 states. It's just a district controlled by Congress. Therefore, it should be up to Congress under the Constitution to decide if it wants to turn some parts of District of Columbia into a state. Now, you might say, but wait, the Constitution mentions D.C. and says that it can't be a state. And so the person says, no problem. Preserve a few blocks around the White House and the Capitol. Call those the District of Columbia. Treat that as not a state. And then take the rest of the district and break it up into 127 states, which is how many it would take to assure on this view the constitutionality of future changes. The idea is to actually get a situation where those voters could control essentially two-thirds of the Senate for all major future determinations and decisions. And the whole claim of the article is you could pull this off within the text of the Constitution. You'd need Congress to do it, but a majority in in this theory, a majority of Congress with a signature by the president could in fact do it. So you would have, you create all these new states. Each of these states gets two senators. The Senate becomes a body with 200-odd senators. And most of them are are residents of the former District of Columbia, presumably areas handpicked for their democraticness. You wouldn't have to do much handpicking in Washington, D.C., even at uh, that micro level, not that many Republicans in the district, yeah. But this obviously is open to the criticism that the other idea avoids, which is this is a massive violation of our democratic norms. Right. Exactly. Exactly. No, I think you're completely right. And that's why this article, you know, shifts from creative to humorous to to absurd, Um, because it would it would violate the core idea of, you know, of the way the framers imagine the Constitution. Now, there's pushback. I mean, again, to put words in the mouth of the anonymous author, we could say, well, the Senate itself is a gross violation of democratic norms. Mm-hmm. And that's actually true. You know, Madison thought that. Madison hated the idea that each state would get two senators, the big states like his state, Virginia, or the little mini states like Delaware and Rhode Island. He detested the very idea of it. And he lost in the Constitutional Convention. You know, famously, he said, no, you know, we're not going to do it that way. And the small states staged a walkout and they shut down the convention. They basically said, we're not coming back unless you agree. And he had no choice. And he actually walked away from the convention feeling that his greatest failure there was mm. the failure to get a democratic, small d, democratically structured Senate. He thought this was a violation of basic principles of, you can't say one man, one vote, because they didn't treat African-Americans as full citizens or as citizens at all. And they had a three-fifths compromise and they didn't let women vote. But he thought that among white men, there should at least be proportionality. And this obviously meant there wasn't. But it, what if uh, someone did a more modest version of this? Uh, and just said, well, let's create a state out of, one state out of D.C. Using this exact same methodology, we'll conserve the crucial areas, call it D.C., and we'll take all of, you know, the balance of of the city and create a new, the new state of Columbia. Does that make this idea plausible? 
Well, it does make it plausible. It just runs into the political problem that has always accompanied the idea of the introduction of new states where it's pretty easy to guess what political party their senators and congressmen will be from. Mm -hmm. And the senators are the ones that matter because D.C. is small enough that it wouldn't have that many representatives. And that is just how do you get the other party to agree? And that's why so many states of the union have been introduced in pairs. Um, You know, this was obviously true before the Civil War. In fact, the big problem before the Civil War was that if you didn't admit states in pairs, slave and free, slave and free, slave and free, they were going to throw off the balance in the Senate. And people were worried that would lead to a civil war. And it kind of did. Yeah. Um, and then afterwards, people said, okay, let's be really cautious about this. Even though no one thinks we're on the brink of civil war, the other party never wants to allow it in and usually uses what it can to block it. But sure, the people who call for statehood in D.C., and there are lots of people like that, are thinking in those terms. Puerto Rico is another really good example. A lot of Puerto Ricans want Puerto Rico to become a, a state, but they just need to get the politics of it right. Either they need to make it look like it'll be half Democratic and half Republican, or alternatively, they need to, if it's going to be mostly Democratic, they need to get a Republican state to come in at the same time. Following along this, these two ideas in combination might work. What if the trade was, in the short term, creating new states out of the existing Texas uh, sounds like it's a pro-Republican idea. I mean, the, the argument about Texas is in the long term, Texas is drifting Democratic. But in the short term, what if a deal was created which said, we will, if you let us create a, a side state out of D.C., we'll let you add a, another state to Texas? I think in principle you could get this, but here's the circularity, I think. You know, the minute that you're having a Democratic state added and then a Republican state added effectively, nobody's winning, right? So the deal would then become pointless. I mean, I no, think no, no. And this no, goes to the, my second... Not pointless. Tell, because tell you're, in, you're increasing the, the Democratic structure of the Senate by... You're solving two problems. One is you're making the Senate more representative by yep, breaking up true. Texas. And two, mm-hmm. you are at long last giving some... Uh, formal representation to the citizens of D.C. It's uh, That strikes me as being, that initial step strikes me as being very easy to justify. Well, that I that I agree with. I mean, I think you wouldn't be solving the unrepresentativeness problem because you'd still have New York and California and yeah. lots and lots of other states, and you still have this huge disparity. But I agree, you'd be moving it slowly in the right direction. Yeah. I think the question is, you know, it takes so much power, so much force to overcome the inertia of something like the arrangement of the states that probably you're only going to see it happening if both parties think they're going to benefit from it in the long run. And since everybody involved is pretty sophisticated, it's hard to get them to think that the other side is going to con them. You know, I I always think of this as similar to the problem in Israel where they don't have a constitution at all. And every Mm -hmm. so often I get a call saying, will you join this commission? We're going to have a blue ribbon commission. We're going to talk about creating a constitution for Israel. And I always say the same thing. The right wing doesn't want to do it because they think that, that it will impose individual rights that they won't like. The left doesn't really necessarily want to do it because they think the right wing will use it to push a more right wing vision of what the country should be like. So the only way it can happen is if each side is convinced that the other side is making a mistake. If each side thinks the other side are suckers, then the deal will happen. And so I, you know, I worry a little bit about that in this in this political context. And that actually brings me to this. Why do you think it's so fascinating for everybody to imagine magical technical fixes to deep structural problems in something like the Constitution. Well, I Just would, to think, aha, we figured it out. One professor figured it out. It's in his notes. There it is. We can fix this problem. Well, I would actually uh, state this uh, somewhat differently, which is the reason that's an, an object of such fascination among Americans is there's something weird about the American political system as opposed to other democracies, which is in other democracies, 
this is my impression as a Canadian, for example, and as someone who knows a lot about the English system as well, that there's way more uh, flexibility in those systems. So you want to dump your prime minister, you dump your prime minister. If Canada decided they didn't want Trudeau tomorrow, vote of no confidence, he's gone. Call an election. You want an election? We can have an election next week. You know, you call an election, it happens within whatever it is, a month or whatever. It's consistent with the notion of democracy in many Western countries is the idea that you can start over. You can rewrite the rules. Canada, in my lifetime, gave itself a constitution and did all kinds of, you know, only in America is this notion like you literally have people in the Supreme Court who are wedded to the interpretations of the constitution that were in place in the middle of the 18th century. I mean, it's bananas. So no wonder totally we're insane. in love. Yeah. Yeah. Well, no wonder we're, Americans are in love with the with these idea of technical fixes because we are alone among sophisticated democracies in having this weird resistance to any kind of, of innovation, even at the fringes. Does that make sense? It does. I mostly agree with that. I mean, on your first point, it's true that any presidential system, not just the American, but any presidential system doesn't have the vote of no confidence, remove the person function. So that's parliamentary democracies do have that, but lots of other constitutional democracies that are presidential systems don't. You can't get rid of the president of France quite that easily. You can't get rid of the president of Brazil that easily. That's why they actually have impeached the president of Brazil recently. That feature is not as unique to the United States, but I think you're right that the idea that we would still use a constitution that's, you know, 230 years old and that also have totally failed once. I mean, most countries after your constitution fails, our civil war was a failure of our constitution. I mean, yeah. that's what it is for a constitution to fail. But after it failed, we didn't admit that it failed. We just said, well, we're going to add these amendments that provide for the end of slavery and equal protection and due process of the law and allow African-Americans to vote. And we're not going to change anything else which yeah. is totally absurd. And that's also led to the situation right now. And I think where you say that's bananas, you're right. Nobody else does it our way. And I guess that leads to this idea that maybe, just maybe, there's some tricky technical way to repair our problems. And that's where, you know, the constitutional lawyer in me wants to say, well, that would be great, but that's up to the politicians and they have to have the will to do it. And yeah. if they really had the will to do it, they wouldn't need something tricky. We could actually have a constitutional convention or we could start again or something like that. Yeah. Let me ask you, something else, a related line of questioning. Mm. And it's this. So if the academics of America had any money, which they don't, or were organized, which they aren't, and they wanted to put together an award for a person in the country, maybe a person in the world, who's done the most for them, the mm. most to popularize their ideas, make, you know, make them seem relevant, you would be the first recipient of that award. In fact, they should probably name it for you. Because Again and again in your career, you found fascinating, quirky opinions by scholars and you've put them into public debate and then people argue about them. And then if you change your mind, you, you quote the scholars from the other side, you're scrupulously fair. Yet, and here's yeah. the yet, when it comes to the institutions that a lot of these professors teach in, the ones that pay their salaries, like fancy Ivy League universities, you seem to really hate the universities. You criticize them. You talk about their unfairness, their injustice. Tell me about that. First of all, am I getting you right? Yes, you're getting me correct. I don't hate all of them. I hate the elite ones. So yes, my allegiances are very clear. My allegiances are, I am a faculty brat myself. And so I identify very strongly with faculty and identify with the students. But I remember come from Canada 
where the goals of the education system were very clear. Access to higher education was, um, in Canada, is what the entire system is supposed to be oriented around. Um, And you're willing to make all kinds of sacrifices in order to maximize the affordability and access to, right? So there's two things I'm interested in, systems that serve the faculty and systems that serve students in form of access. To my mind, the American higher ed uh, system has betrayed both those things. I think academics are grossly undervalued and underpaid, which is weird because the cost of a university education has skyrocketed, which is one of those strange puzzles. Whenever I hear like what someone teaching like eight classes at a state university, what they're making, Mm -hmm. I'm appalled. This is one of the central functions of a civilized society is the education of its intellectual class. And, you know, we're paying these people embarrassing wages, A. But B, and at the same time, we're escalating the cost of education to the point where people are spending their first 10 years post-college or more paying off their loans. That's also crazy. And I think what's it, you know, there are many things to blame of this, but one of them is the example. There's a handful of institutions that are at the very top of the food chain that are setting an extraordinarily bad example. And they are the schools of the Ivy League. My favorite whipping horse at the moment is Princeton. You know, Princeton, Princeton and Harvard both should be 10 times the size. I mean, 10 times maybe too much, but I don't know. It's not, when, you, when you realize that the University of Toronto is 75,000 students, mm-hmm. it becomes really, really, really hard to justify Princeton, which has resources that are probably 10x the University of Toronto, why Princeton mm-hmm. is a tenth the size, less than a tenth the size. Everything you're saying is true. And I, but I want to, let me just raise a couple of possible counterarguments and just hear your yeah. thoughts about them. So first I hear you, you know, some of this is you're seeing it from a Canadian perspective and like a good Canadian, you look at the United States, we have a crazy constitution and we have a crazy higher educational system. That's fair enough. And I think it's true. It does raise first off the question of whether the putting a lot of resources into a handful of institutions actually produces better conditions for the faculty there. So you mentioned the terrible underpayment of professors who teach at state universities. And that's absolutely right. But that's not the elite institutions. The elite institutions do much better in terms of compensation. And especially when you measure it in terms of how much teaching they're doing. So if you teach at Princeton, you actually have the chance to write and read, or if you're in a lab, do lab research. And that's where a huge amount of the scholarship is getting produced. I don't think anyone could say with a straight face that Princeton professors are under-resourced or underpaid. To the contrary, they're well-resourced, they're fairly paid, And they produce a ton of interesting ideas because that takes up a lot of time. Whereas the same exact people with the same degree of training and skill and creativity were put in a state institution where they had to teach four courses a semester. They would produce less in the way of creative and original ideas, a lot less. And I would just add, you know, we we can talk about University of Toronto in a second. That's an incredible institution. But, you know, I have one of my best students ever is a professor uh, at University of Toronto in the law school. And that's a great, great law school. It has some private funding for it. But her work requirements are substantially greater than they would be at a comparably ranked U.S. law school. She just does a lot more work because, as you said, there are just so many students and the law school actually isn't that huge. Yeah. No, I mean, the thing about underpayment is a critique of the the 90th percentile on down. It's yeah. obviously not a critique. of, And my critique about the second critique, though, is a critique of the top. So one is a 
One's a mass critique and one's an elite critique. But they're linked in the sense that one of the one of the things that makes it difficult for universities who are not elite to pay their faculty properly and to preserve access is that they are trapped in an arms race that's being driven by the elite institutions. The problem is that the whole system is in, in the middle of the Semenides arms race, which is all being fueled by the actions of, you know, 15 schools at the top, which have access to disproportionate resources. If I'm Ohio State, I am, on some level, I am competing for uh, students with, um, you know, private elite colleges, and I have to play that game to attract them. I got to have a nicer dining hall. I got to have better food. I got to have, and what does that leave me? Less money left over to pay my faculty properly and less money left over to subsidize the cost of providing an education and more money going into things that have no real educational function. Um, there's something a little bit screwy about um, the incentive structure of, of higher education. So I'm not, I mean, I'm not saying anything that has not been said a thousand times before. I just I, I'm just lose, beginning to lose patience with the fetishization of private education in this country. Right. I mean, look, the amenities arms race is completely insane. It's a product not just of competition, although that's a big part of it, but also of the commercialization of education where the universities and the colleges think of the students as customers. And if yeah. they're customers, well, then the customer is always right. And you have to cultivate the customer and you have, you're in the business of providing education services for the customer. Ironically, the elite institutions worry less about that than the middle level institutions, because at the elite institutions, we know that the students will come. And although we try to be nice about the amenities, because after all, we have the resources, why shouldn't we be? We're not really doing amenities in order to get students to come here who might go somewhere else. What's difficult is if you're a middle ranked institution. You know, my, my brother teaches at Connecticut College, which is a fantastic liberal arts college in Connecticut. And they have to be very aware that they're competing with other small liberal arts colleges for the best students. And that if they fall behind, they could fall off the cliff. You know, if they go yeah. onto the second page of the U.S. News and World Report, they've seen it happen to other colleges. So they have to compete on every ground that 18-year-olds care about. And I don't think that that amenities race is actually coming from the very top. I think it's coming from other colleges in their same, you know, in their same range. They're competing with similar colleges. Yeah, yeah. You know, this, there's a, if I might bring this conversation, try and bring it full circle. The reason why, to go back to Michael Paulson for a moment, the thing that is um, so beautiful, if I might use that word, about that article he wrote was he uses a provocative, mischievous idea as a vessel for almost tricking you into thinking about some pretty weighty serious subjects, right? In other words, he's doing what a great teacher is supposed to do. I am not someone who would normally ever read something about constitutional law. He tricked me in the most beautiful, lovely way into like spending a month of my life thinking about constitutional law because he had this clever way in. And to my mind, that thing that he did in that article is what a university is supposed to do, is lure you into thinking about things that you would never have thought about. And at the end of the day, leave you with a feeling of not just satisfaction, but joy, like that the whole experience was fun. And I, I, when I look at what universities are doing now, I feel like they are doing everything but that. They're trying to convince you that they're, here are nine reasons to go to our university. But the idea that you might 
get some kind of intellectual pleasure out of toying with a radical idea seems to be not just way down the list, but also when they do encounter radical ideas, they run for the tall grass, screaming and like hiding there. You know, so it's like, it's such a kind of weird inversion. Like it should be enough. If I'm 17 and I read that article, I should say, oh my God, I want to go and be taught a course by that guy. That should be mm-hmm. the reason I go to college, right? Yeah. In a world where 17-year-olds were already reading law review articles, though, we'd have no other problems. <laughs> that would be a magic world where everything would already have been solved. Everyone would be a little Malcolm Godwell in the making, you know? No, no. But but Noah, think about this. Imagine if I said, if I uh, asked you to teach a course in an honors class of a public high school, honor, mm-hmm. senior honors class in a public high school in the Boston area, and your text was that Michael Paulson article, Do you think you could hold their interest for a semester? Totally. For sure. Yeah, for for sure. sure. I don't know about a whole semester, but you could definitely get students engaged and interested. No doubt about it. Good students. And again, that's against the backdrop of having, as you say, an honors class at a public high school where the kids... But that's the feeding ground for what we're talking about. Yeah, those are the kids who are going to go to these schools that we're talking about. And there's a lot. There are hundreds and hundreds of thousands of kids in honors classes in America who potentially could find that article really, really fun and hilarious um, and exciting, you know, and that's what I, that's just a little piece of it that seems to me to be absent. That's a super uh, nice way of thinking about it. And I, I agree that in the long run, our objective should be to get those teachers who are teaching those kids and who are, for the most part, are doing a great job yeah. to, you know, to have the opportunity to teach them stuff like that. I think that's a very Malcolm perspective and I think it's super helpful. Can I ask you just one, one last question? And yeah. it's this, and it's relevant to also to, you know, to your, your finding Paulson and you're being able to get that interview with him. How do you find getting the interviews to work so well in a podcast? I mean, you're, you're spectacular at it. Here I am trying to have my own podcast, trying to learn how to do it properly. What's this, what's the secret sauce? I'm not talking now about the secret sauce of coming up with your ideas. That's unique. And, you know, there's no way to share that you're, you're Malcolm, but when it comes to doing the interviews, maybe there you've got some secret sauce you can share. Well, the lovely thing about if I'm interviewing you for a newspaper article, having been a newspaper reporter for 10 years of my life, people would often be nervous to talk to you because they're aware of how uh, difficult, not biased necessarily, although bias is sometimes a problem, just inherently difficult the task is. So I'm writing an article on deadline that's going to be 800 words in which I'm tackling a very difficult topic. I'm going to talk to you for 20 minutes when the conversation should really be an hour and a half. And I'm going to extract two sentences that bear on the thing I'm writing about that it is almost certainly the case that those two sentences that I extract do a far less than adequate job of representing your true position. It's just structurally, institutionally, that form is really hard for all parties. It's like fracking. You know, you're extracting something and that you don't really care what the costs are and you're going to do it and you're going to leave them behind afterwards. Yes, under great pressure. Um, yes, no, the analogy is beautiful. Um, and that's, so that's like, that's the world I started in and I was aware of its shortcomings. Then I go to the New Yorker and now you have much more space and much more time, but you still have the problem that you are extracting the interview from its context. Um, in a podcast interview, both parties are aware that it's about as safe an interview space as is possible, because now the person gets to 
say it in their own words. And so you, all of the kind of tone of voice, irony, even things like, you know, the constant thing in, in print journalism, if that quote was taken out of context, mm-hmm. why? Because you left off the, you know, the clause at the end of the sentence or the sentence that came immediately before, which clarified it, much harder to do in an audio interview. So what happens in an audio interview is that people that you're interviewing are aware that they're getting a much more accurate representation of their ideas. And as a result, they relax. And if you can communicate that fact that, oh, I'm just going to let this run. You know, why don't you just tell me what's on your mind? And, you know, they're funnier because they have more time to be funny and they're not as anxious about being misrepresented. And they'll say more interesting things because they have this time and space to qualify them appropriately. And, you know, so like, that's just a, it's just a safe space, um, a safer space for this kind of conversation. And I think that's why I like this um, format so much. Thank you for joining the safe space of deep background, Malcolm. It's the first time anyone has ever used the word safe space in the same sentence with me, but I'll take it. And I'm, I'm very happy to hear it. <laughs> Thanks for coming. Okay. Wonderful. Deep Background is brought to you by Pushkin Industries. Our producer is Lydia Jean Cott, with studio recording by Joseph Fridman and mastering by Jason Gambrell and Jason Rostkowski. Our showrunner is Sophie McKibben. Our theme music is composed by Luis Guerra. Special thanks to the Pushkin Brass, Malcolm Gladwell, Jacob Weisberg, and Mia Lobel. I'm Noah Feldman. You can follow me on Twitter at Noah R. Feldman. This is Deep Background.